Well, that may seem laughable to even ask, but have you ever asked the question, why? Now, there are a variety of ways that we can ask the question, why, right? So let's, let's talk through those for a brief moment. We can ask why in an inquisitive way. Why is the sky blue? Why do you act the way that you do? Why am I so sick and tired of being sick and tired? Why? We could also ask why in a rebellious and angry way when asked to do something we just don't want to do, a chore. We can say, why? When that bill comes that we really just don't want, we ask the question, why? In anger, frustration. When we make a fool of ourselves, we can ask the question, goodness, why? We can also ask why when we experience or witness something that is simply unexplainable or undeserved. Why did this terrible thing happen? Why did I lose my child, my spouse, my mother, my father? Why? Why do horrible things happen to good people? Why? We may have a common or even scientific answer to that question. But we still ask the question anyway, don't we? Why? Well, the book of Job, the book that we're going to be walking into this morning, stepping through the door of chapter 1, in part is given to us to address some, just some, of the whys of this life. But even more than that, it is a book that is given to us to do two interrelated things. First, it is a book to help us understand and recognize the truth that this is God's world. It's God's world. Second, This book is given to us to help us see very dimly the purpose of suffering in a world that is sovereignly governed by him. So please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Job. There is no shame in using your table of contents if necessary. It's in the Old Testament. If you Uh, need a Bible and you do not have one, you could find one under a chair near you. You could find the book of Job on page 389. 389. Uh, This morning, we're going to be embarking on an occasional series through this book. And in this first message, we're going to look at Job's context, his circumstances, and his godly character. In the second message, Lord willing, next month, we'll look at Job's 
conversations. And then the third message that will happen, Lord willing, the following month, we will look and address Job's conclusions. So Job's context, Job's conversations, Job's conclusions. And today we're going to be looking at Job's context in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. And you'll be helped to keep your Bible open to this passage this morning because we're going to be living in it. Uh, Please follow along as I read this, this whole prologue, this introduction to the book of Job. Job 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, the great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. 
Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has, he still, or he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, do you hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is God's word and it is given to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray, and we'll work through this passage. Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would fill us with a peace beyond our understanding. Send your spirit now, to turn on the lights in our dim minds and increase our faith and cause us to see hope and glory in the Son, Jesus. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, you who is our rock and our redeemer. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, maybe you've never taken the time to read through the wisdom literature of Job before. And and so this story, this introduction is somewhat unfamiliar to you. Or maybe this is a book that you're somewhat familiar with, that you read from time to time, maybe annually. Maybe you read it some time ago or or even recently. Or, Or maybe you deeply enjoy the book of Job and you read it regularly. You love the book. No matter how unfamiliar or familiar you are with the book of Job, I wonder what you were thinking and what you were feeling as we read those verses this morning, that passage this morning. Are you unsettled? Are you confused? Are you comforted? Is your head and your heart filled with an abundance of questions? Did these words make you question the character of God, his love, his sovereignty, his mercy, how he governs the world? Or did it make you feel apathetic, maybe a little blasé toward life, almost thinking to yourself, well, if this is the way the world is governed, I give up. Who cares? 
Well, if you feel or think any of these things, if you've thought any of these things while reading these verses this morning, then you need to know that you are in good company. We are, we are together. We are together this morning as a church body. We're together in this. This text is heavy, and this sermon will be heavy. And this passage, this, this whole book really is a, is a category burster of our theology and our life experiences in the Christian life. But the spirit that the hand of the narrator of Job through the writer wants us to come before the throne of God with all that heaviness, with all of our doubts, with all of our uncertainties, with all of our questions. He wants us to come before the throne of God so that we may more clearly see and better understand a God who is far greater and wiser and so far beyond our comprehension. That is the purpose of Job. Job is fundamentally a book about God and who he is. And so let's step further in, further up into the passage now. To guide our time, here's the main idea of chapter 1 through 2, verse 10 this morning. Here's the big idea. In God's world, undeserved suffering tests our faith and points us to the cross. In God's world, undeserved suffering tests our faith and points us to the cross. And Lord willing, we're going to see this point unfold as we look at more closely in the text, the setting and saint, the the circumstances of Job and his godly character in verses one through five of chapter one. And then we're going to look at his sifting and his suffering in chapter one, verse six through chapter two, verse 10. So point one, the the shorter of the two points, the setting and the saint. Our story begins, like all good stories do, in a land far, far away. Not, Not in the land of Oz, but in the land of Uz. Scholars don't know where Uz was originally, but general consensus is that it was probably located around Edom a place called Edom, which is east of the promised land in what is considered today southwest Jordan. And we we read here of a man named Job. And if Job had a social media account or a resume profile, here's what it would say according to verse 1. Job is blameless, upright, God-fearing, and turns away from evil. Job is a man of good character, He's an honest man. He's a humble man. And as verse 3 states, I don't know if you caught this, he's the greatest of all the people in the East. Wow. That's quite a description. It's an amazing description of a man. And I wonder, just briefly, I wonder what your life and character reveals about you. What is your legacy? What What will it be? What will it look like? Are you a man or woman that is marked by this sort of godliness? Consider if you are indeed a Christian, does this describe you? Do these words describe you? What would your spouse, your friend, your coworker say about you? Are you a Job like person? I wonder. In humility, may we pray along with the psalmist in light of these words. 
The psalmist in Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May we ask the Lord to make us Job-like people that bear these same marks, people in pursuit of godly living. But church, when we're, when we're talking about Job, when we're reading these, these verses, we're talking about an extraordinarily good man, a godly man, a person that is a Psalm 1 man, planted by the streams of water, a person that is prospering in all areas of life under the, the blessed eye and hand of God. This is Job. That's what we see in verses 3 through 5. Job's got a blessed full quiver. He's a good father. We see here he's got 10 kids and quite the farm. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. Job is faithful and by all earthly accounts, successful. He's got a family also that, that gets together that dines regularly. And we read in verses five through six that Job is intimately involved in their spiritual lives. Did you notice that? Intimately involved in their spiritual life, consecrating them anxiously, anxiously bringing them before the Lord and offering sacrifices for them for sins that may, they may or may not have even committed. Job's not perfect is important. Job is not perfect. And this is important because it's going to come up later. It's going to come up later in the book. He is a sinner in need of mercy and grace and increased faith, just like you and I. But the narrator wants us to see here at that start, start of the book, here in the prologue, that Job is a saint. Not not saint in like a Roman Catholic sense, like some sort of angel or advocate. Job is a saint. He is God's man, a servant of God. And, and clearly he has a place amongst the Old Testament Hall of Fame. Right there alongside Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he is righteous. This is the setting and the sainthood of Job right here in verses 1 through 5. And these, these first five uh, verses kind of remind us, if you've seen that movie of George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life, right? This dude has got a wonderful man with a wonderful family and a wonderful place with wonderful success. It's almost too good to be true. Almost too good to be true. And it's here after presenting the setting and, and this character, lead character in our story, Job, that the narrator takes us here from earth into a heavenly courtroom here in the text. That brings us to point two, the sifting and suffering of Job. Let me read once again uh, chapter 1, 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands. 
and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went from the presence of the Lord. Well, again, here the narrator takes us from earth into a heavenly courtroom where the curtain is pulled back. And we see how heaven and earth are governed. We vividly see three parties there in verse 6. Did you notice them? There's God who is on his throne. There are the sons of man, or sons of God, I'm sorry, which are the angels who are presenting themselves before him. And also Satan, the accuser, the adversary of God and his people, is also among them. Three parties in this place. And starting in verse 7, we get to hear a dialogue. We get to put our ear against the, against the wall. We get to hear this exchange between God and Satan. And God says, verse 7, where have you been, Satan? And Satan responds, oh, you know, just walking around the earth, cruising around. And God said, verse 8, have you checked out my servant Job? Have you considered this man? And God says, line for line, what we learned about him in those first five verses. He's the greatest in all the land. He's blameless, upright, God-fearing, and he turns away from evil. It's clear that God loves Job. It's clear. It's clear that, that God is even proud of Job. We need to remember that. Well, in response to this, Satan presents a test. That test in, in verses 9 through 11. Verses 9 through 11, we, we see that Satan in a scheming and subtle way calls Job's character, his godly character into question, along with the motives behind it. And, and Satan is sure, he is sure that, he will, that Job will curse God if his God-given possessions and prosperity and protection are stripped from him. He is sure that this test will lead not to a deepening of Job's faith, but to a complete devastation of it. That's what we see in these verses. And so God responds, verse 11, look there with me. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him, which is his body. Do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Here God permits Satan to sift Job and strip him of his earthly blessings. It is here in this heavenly scene where we see three truths, three truths that we need to catch that are essential to our understanding of who God is, who Job is, and our own lives. Here's the application, if you will, that lifts right out of these verses. This passage here, these verses inform and impact our theology and our lives in these three ways. Here we are. First, God is completely sovereign over heaven and earth. If he isn't completely sovereign, then he isn't God. The moment that God is not sovereign, he ceases to be God. He is supreme. He is sovereign over all. This proves that this is God's world and no one else's. And everything happens in accordance with his will. A will that is not divided nor thwarted. 
Nothing happens that is outside of his watchful eye. The reformer, Martin Luther, even talked about the devil being God's devil. Even God owns Satan. Satan has no power, zero, outside of God's permission. Zero. That's the first truth that we see. Second, we see that Satan is real. He is a real adversary and accuser. He is so much more than a a little red man with black tights and a creepy tail and an annoying voice. Satan is the one who, according to 1 Peter 5.8, prowls around like a roaring lion doing what? Seeking someone to devour. Second Corinthians 11 says that the devil, Satan himself, parades around as an angel of light. He is scheming, malicious, capable, and accusatory. And yet he is fully under God's authority and limited in his power. That's the second truth that we see. Third, we see that God permits. He allows tests of faith. We are not pawns. We need to be clear on this. Job is on a pawn, and we are not pawns in some divine chess game. We're not. We're not. God is sovereign over the tests and the outcomes. Tests will come. They do come. They have come, right? But in so many ways, our faith is merely theoretical and hypothetical until those trials come. What else, I ask this question, what else will push us beyond easier affirmations of faith than when we face suffering and tests of faith like this? What else will do that work in our lives? By what other means? What else will push us beyond those easy affirmations of faith? Affirmations that happen on the days when the sun's out and the birds are chirping. Well, last, last Monday morning, uh, I was with my family outside at, at sunrise. And it was glorious. It was amazing. The, the colors on Monday morning here in Edgewood were out of this world. It was amazing. It was beautiful. But in just an instant, a, a thick fog rolled in and completely eclipsed all of the beauty. It eclipsed all of the sun. Didn't mean that the sun ceased to exist, but it eclipsed everything. It was, it was gray. It was dark. Color lost in a moment. And this is similar to what happens in our story. For in verses 13 through 19, the narrative moves from heaven back to earth where things go tragically, unexpectedly, and undeservedly dark and like a blind side suffering comes upon Job. Look with me at verses 13 through 19. Let me read those once again. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house and there came a messenger of Job to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding and beside them and the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you While he was yet speaking, there came another. It said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. 
while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took, took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Here, all hell breaks loose in Job's life. Disaster after disaster strikes. Did you notice four in a row? Four in a row. All livestock taken. All servants murdered. All his children. All ten children killed. How? By a storm. Can you imagine? Can you feel the weight of this tragedy? Undeserved suffering comes upon Job, and he is desolate and he is devastated. This is the first round of Satan's permitted sifting. And how does Job respond? Look there with me at verses 20 through 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In the midst of Job's little hell, he grieves and he worships and humbly declares that from the beginning of his life, God has been good in the giving and in the taking away. Blessed be his name. Beloved, how do you respond when suffering comes? How do you respond when suffering comes? How do you treat God when the sifting comes? Do you worship him? Or do you turn from him? God is always worthy of our worship. Always. This truth is pictured here. And it has been said by others before me that even in the midst of bitter providence, even in the midst of suffering like this, God is worthy of our worship simply because of who he is. Our worship is ultimately rooted not in our circumstances, but in his character. Well, in this test of faith, God is vindicated. Job is vindicated. God proves himself and Job proves himself and round two begins. Round two begins. The narrator lifts our eyes back to heaven and then takes us back down to earth once again. Look with me at chapter two, verses one through eight. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. 
But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Let me read two more verses. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while they sat in the ashes. Again, God's governing of the world is on display. And Job's godliness is upheld here in this text, in the second test, once again. But Satan wants his pound of flesh. And so this time, he is allowed to attack Job's body. See, Satan is sure that Job will curse God if his God-given health is stripped from him. Satan knows that health crisis has a way of gutting us, has a way of tilling up anger and animosity and angst within us. Satan knows that. And barring death, God permits the second test. And Job is brutally afflicted. He bears the marks of something akin to leprosy. Did you notice Notice the description of his ailment here. And he is sitting and he is scraping himself from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head, from his heel to his head in an ash heap. This language is connected to the language of Sheol and the language of grieving in the Old Testament, sackcloth and ashes. It's also connected to that word Gehenna in the, in the New Testament, which is the trash ash heap outside of a given town. Job is in the depths of a little Sheol, a private Gehenna of chronic suffering. That's where he is. And it is in this place where we hear the voice of Job's wife. Verses 9 through 10. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Is this response wrong? Yeah. But can we blame her? I want to be real for a moment. Sometimes we treat, I think both Job and Job's wife, like they're otherworldly humans, like they're not, they're not real humans. Job's wife has lost everything alongside Job, everything. And we cannot forget that. And in her weakness, she tells Job, enough is enough. All is lost. Do you really still believe? Are you really holding fast? Be done with God. It's better for you to die than continue to endure what you are enduring. But Job says, right back, like clockwork, verse 10, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? And the narrator tells us once again, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job remained stead fast in the midst of these tests. Steadfast. He stood refined. 
under the sovereign hand and eye of God, blameless, upright, and God-fearing. And yet, in the next 40 chapters, we're going to look at those 40 chapters in the next sermon, next month, Lord willing, we, we listen in on Job's questions, his doubts, his, his uncertainties, which are very real, which are very real. We're going to look at those next month, Lord willing. We're going to get there. But at the close of this introduction, if we're honest with ourselves, this whole text is a bit unsettling, isn't it? Well, let's see how we read something like this and not be unsettled. We've got questions the text doesn't answer. We've got questions that the whole book, again, isn't going to answer. There's mystery that goes beyond us here, that goes beyond our comprehension here. But how do we live in that mystery? How do we live in the gray of life's circumstances? How do we live as saints, saved by grace, through faith, in the dissonance of sifting and suffering? How do we live in the tension between God's sovereignty and undeserved suffering in this life? Well, these questions, along with this passage, along with this whole book, they're not neat and tidy. They're not neat and tidy. But if we're honest with ourselves, we want, don't we? We want neat and tidy. We want that. We want five easy points from Job on how to deal with his pain. We want the comfort, the independence, the pursuit of happiness that our declaration of independence promises us. We want our best life now. In our flesh, we want the blessed life of comfort, a functional prosperity gospel without a mysterious God and certainly without a book like this. In our flesh, we want that. We so often want a veneer of happy plastered over the dark parts of our lives. In the midst of all of these desires, we may be tempted in our unsettledness and in the mystery and our suffering to say with Job's wife, God just isn't worth it. But brothers and sisters, we cannot get rid of our problems by getting rid of God. We can't get rid of our problems by just tweaking our theology just a little bit to alleviate suffering, to alleviate the sovereignty of God and the trials of our faith. We can't do that. Because in this life, in our Father's world that is also very fallen, and longing for complete and perfect redemption, suffering is inevitable. And if you are indeed a Christian, again, tests of faith will come similar to Job's. No one escapes God, nor trials, nor suffering. We see this in Job. We see this in our lives. We see this in the lives of others, particularly in the church. And it's easy right, to logically rationalize suffering that is brought on by bad decisions, right? We look at somebody from the outside and say, whoa, 
well, that's happening because of X, Y, or Z. That's happening because of that. It's easy to rationalize that sort of suffering due to foolish behavior. But what do we do? This is, this is the question that, that the narrator is wanting us to ask. What do we do with undeserved, unthinkable, unexplainable suffering that comes to the pavement of our lives and the lives of others? What do we do with that? This sort of suffering has come in waves in my own life from the loss of a child to all the way to chronic illness in my family. But uh, we experienced a, a swell, a tidal wave of this in, in March of 2022 uh, when my mom, my dear mother, uh, a godly upright woman who loved and served my father faithfully, who raised us in the fear and admonition of the Lord, who sang in her music ministry faithfully, who served her neighbors practically and evangelistically week in, week out. The swell came when she went in for a preemptive heart surgery for a condition that stemmed back to her childhood. There was no imminent threat. She managed her own health well. She received counsel from multiple doctors and decided that it was time to go in for a surgery sooner than later at a renowned hospital down in California. She went into the hospital healthy and then died in that same hospital. While in surgery, there was a complication, a mistake made by the surgeon, and that mistake unfurled into a 60-day battle between life and death. Slowly, what was left of her heart failed. Every organ shut down, and I watched her slowly lose every mental faculty over the course of my visits before sepsis took in and, and took her life. She suffered an undeserved and unthinkable death. It's amazing. In my visits with her, the only thing that would bring her peace in the midst of all of that discomfort was, was the presence of family, the, the hearing of God's word, and the singing of her favorite hymns and songs that would bring her noticeable peace in that critical care unit room. My mom's story is, is unique in many ways, but it's also common, isn't it? Look around the world, around us, even the lives in this very room. This kind of suffering happens. We've experienced it, or we've experienced it alongside another. In the words of Christopher Ashe, as a pastor and commentator, we, we are either living in suffering from the armchair or the wheelchair. Either watching it from the outside or we're in it. We all experience it. And this sort of suffering leads us to ask, is God there? If, if he is, is he a cosmic sadist? Is he cruel? Is he flippant or arbitrary in his rule? Job-like suffering, suffering like my mom endured, causes us to live in the, tensions, in the tension of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the truth of Psalm 103, 
Bless the Lord, O my soul. So what do we do with suffering that doesn't seem compatible with God's love nor the decisions of our lives? Again, that question. What do we do with Job's undeserved suffering and our own? Well, we look to the one. Brothers and sisters, we look to the one who endured undeserved, unthinkable suffering that was far beyond our comprehension. In the words of another pastor, in the words of Tim Keller, God's wise, redemptive love in your life is perfectly compatible with terrible suffering in your life. Just look at Jesus. See, the undeserved suffering in Job's life, in your life, in my life, the lives of our loved ones, points us to the cross. It points us to the one who faced undeserved and unthinkable suffering in our place. Job was a blameless, upright, God-fearing man, as it says in the text, that points to the perfect, blameless, upright, God-fearing God-man, Christ Jesus. If we don't understand that, then we are not going to have a clue what to do with Job. We're not. Job is a shadow. He is a type of Christ that helps us make sense of suffering in this life. Job was a servant of God. As we read twice in our passage, that points us to the better suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who bore our griefs, carried our sorrows, was afflicted by God and pierced for our transgressions. If we want to make sense of the depths of sorrow in this life, then we must look to him, the one who walked the path of grief and suffering ahead of us, up Golgotha where he was brutally crucified for sinners and then descended into Sheol under the wrath of God and his wrath against sin. We must look to Christ. In the words of of J. Todd Billings, As a pastor and writer, Job points us to our need for a pioneer, a priest who knows our weaknesses, a savior who has been to Sheol precisely because God or because death and many of our sufferings that we face are not good in any intrinsic sense. We can have our hearts awakened by this innocent one. In Christ's Innocent and disgraceful and undeserved suffering. He bore the shame of your suffering and mine. He bore your death and mine on the cross. He endured that undeserved suffering from birth certificate to death certificate for sinners. But then three days later, he got up from the dead in glory, in resurrection life, and all who repent of their sin and turn to him in repentance and faith will not perish in this life or the next. This is the gospel for saints and sufferers. This is the gospel that Job points toward And if you are here today and you don't know Jesus, if you're having a hard time making sense of your suffering, hard time making sense of of this life and what, what comes and goes, 
I'll be standing in the back after the service, or you could find Pastor Jeff, or you could find another Christian in this room. We would love nothing more than to talk with you about the gospel and what it looks like to suffer well in light of the suffering servant in this life. But to you, dear Christian, our passage today does not answer all of our questions, but it does help us grieve. It helps us grieve. It helps us say that this isn't right. This is not the way it's supposed to be, but I trust God and find my hope in him alone. This passage read in light of Jesus also gives us a glimpse of assurance that even in the midst of fiery trials, of fiery tests, according to James 1, that the testing of our faith is what produces what? Steadfastness. That 2 Corinthians 4.17, that these momentary afflictions are preparing us. Do you believe this, okay? According to 2 Corinthians 4.17, these momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And though we see through a mirror dimly today, and only in part, we will fully and completely see by faith on the last day when we are face to face with God. But until that day, in, in the real dissonance of faith in this life, in the midst of tests, when we are asking, why? May we stand upon the wisdom and supremacy of God May we stand upon him upright and righteous, looking to Christ as our hope in life and death and with joy and confidence, say and sing, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls belong to him. Who holds our days within his hands? What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ, our hope in life and death. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Job that though it is difficult, that though it raises questions, questions that we may never have answered this side of glory, Lord, we thank you for giving us a book like this that causes us to behold the glory of your son Jesus. And we thank you that it is not death to die because of him. We thank you that our suffering does have a culmination point and will end when you return and wipe every tear from our eye and death is no more. May we look toward that day with confident assurance in your son, Jesus. Spirit, cause us to look to him by faith, relying fully upon you, come what may, in this life. And it's in your son, his name that we pray, amen.